Good morning, church. It's a, a privilege to be with you and to bring greetings from Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville. We uh, pray for you regularly and are thankful for the work that God is doing here at Rockfish Valley. And uh, you've you've benefited from Ben's preaching several times, and so I'm I'm privileged to be here and uh, share in that work. And uh, and good to see you uh, in person to have a better sense of. Uh, how God is is working here. So we're very thankful for that and glad to serve this morning. A couple of weeks ago, the uh, headlines were dominated by the the news of uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress about the way that his company uh, gets our information and how they use it. And uh, without getting into a lot of detail about that, the underlying... imperative for what Facebook does is connect people, right? That's what, that's what they're all about, is making connections between people. And for a long time, we've seen Facebook's social power, as we've, we've used it ourselves, many of us, but lately, it's been increasingly evident that there are economic and even political implications for what they're doing. But even with those concerns aside, and, and our personal information being used against, against our will, you know, that set, set all those things aside, we should still stop and consider why is it that we think it's so important and so valuable uh, to connect with other people. So I think on the, on the surface, we can see there's you know, immediate benefits or the potential of benefits like uh, rediscovering an old friendship or getting a job or interacting with a celebrity or maybe even becoming one yourself. But as Christians we have to understand that each of these relationships has a moral dimension to it, right? Relationships never exist apart from the reality that God has made us and we are made to glorify God both in our relationship with Him and our relationships with other people. And I think it's with with that in mind, that reality that relationships are given to us as a stewardship from God is why, at least part of why, the letter of 2 John was written is to help Christians understand how to better relate to God and to one another. So uh, that's where we will be this morning, 2 John, one of the shortest books of the New Testament. And I'm going to read it in its entirety and then we'll consider a few things. So 2 John, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. 
anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. As we've heard, this is a a relatively short letter, just 13 quick verses and a few observations to understand what's going on in, in the context. It's written by John. It doesn't say that explicitly. He calls himself the elder. But we know he is the, the author of the Gospel of John, the other epistles, and the book of Revelation. And in the Gospel, he consistently refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Just rejoicing, I think, in the relationship that he had with Jesus, loving him so personally. He was a major figure in the early church and is elder both in his experience and in his office in the church. And so he writes to the elect lady and her children, and although that sounds at first like we may be talking about an individual, I think the best way to understand that is it's a metaphor for the church and its members. We, we hear at the end, right, the children of your elect sister greet you. Uh, the church is the chosen bride of Christ. We see this language used elsewhere where Peter refers to she who is in Babylon, referring to the church in Rome. I think it's the, the best way to see this as individual churches, as sisters, and individual members of those churches as the children. And we hear John's burden for this church to be characterized by two particular things, truth and love. It comes up over and over again in his writings. And I think that's the main idea of the book, is that Christians must be united in truth and love. Now John uses a metaphor of walking to describe the Christian life. It's it's a lifestyle, it's a journey with a destination. And so we'll consider three points this morning. Walk in truth, walk in love, and walk together. So walk in truth, walk in love, walk together. Let's consider first walk in truth. We see this right at the beginning. Verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So it's probably good for us to stop and ask, what is truth? If we think about it just abstractly, truth is that which is in accord with reality. There's something real out there, and truth is the thing that corresponds to that. More specifically, truth is a reference to the most important facts. Who are we? What were we made for? Why are we exist? What's the purpose of life? The answers to those questions are the truth, right? And that is to to make an important point that there is truth and there is falsehood, right? There aren't different explanations that all have some merit and nobody really knows. No, there is truth. Some things are right and some things are wrong. In John's writings, truth is something he's very concerned about and it ultimately comes down to the identity of Jesus. And so we can see even in the very beginning of the gospel, the eternal word who was with God, was God from the beginning, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus, among other things, is the the manifestation of God's truth. He is the right way to understand and interpret reality. He's the model for the right and proper way to live. 
right? So sometimes my kids will be digging around in the garage and they'll discover some new sporting equipment that they've never seen, something ancient from uh, my childhood, right? And, and they're, they're using it, but they don't know what they're doing. And so I have to come alongside of them and say, no, no, son, you hold the tennis racket right here and this is how you swing it or this is how you put the glove on this hand and not this hand. You walk through. I have to show them that. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. He's showing us the right way to live in response to God the Father. And so throughout the Gospel, John is unpacking essential truths about who Jesus is. So let me just walk through a few of these. Jesus is from God. So in John 17, 8, he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. We see that Jesus is king. So in 1837, when he's testifying before Pilate, he says, you say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He explains to his disciples that he is the only way to a relationship with God. So in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, father, to the Father except through me. So these are Jesus' claims. We also see that John, the, the author, uses the truth to describe the historical facts about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so in 1935, he writes, he, that is John, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Truth also describes how Jesus is at work in us. And so he prays to God the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In 424, he tells the woman at the well, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And it's to this end that he promises to send the Holy Spirit of truth to indwell and guide and help his disciples. We see that in 14, 15, and 16. And then in 8... 44, John confirms that his words are the truth he has received from the Father, and those who reject him are proving they are not children of God, but they are children of Satan, who is a liar. And so in many ways, in the Gospel of John, truth is synonymous with the Gospel, the message of the Gospel, the good news that God sent his Son into the world, that he came as man, though still God, to live a perfect life that we owe to God, to die the death that our sin and rebellion against God deserves, to be raised so that all who repent of sin and believe in Him could be forgiven and made children of God instead of spending eternity in hell receiving the blessings of salvation, of eternal life with God. So from that message, we learn that life is really about having a right relationship with God. It's understanding our place in this world as His creation for His glory, understanding that we've all rejected Him and gone our own way, but that in Jesus, God is pursuing us. He's bringing us back to Himself. And so truth means believing that Jesus is who He says He is in the Bible, that He accomplished exactly what He said He accomplished, and that He is alive and well, and then we live then through Him in response to those realities. So friends, I don't know really any of you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the most important thing you need to know. You need to ask what truth it is that you're living by and how your standards line up with what Jesus is claiming. 
If you have questions about that, I would just encourage you to consider taking time to find a member of this church and read through a gospel together and weigh your life against what Jesus has to say. But, but even now, if you're convinced of your rebellion against God, your need to be forgiven of your sins, all you have to do is turn to renounce that sin, to ask God's forgiveness through Jesus, and resolve to follow Christ. Today, even now, can be the moment, the day of your salvation. So now with a, a better grasp of what John is talking about when he says truth, let's look back to verses 1-3. to three. It says, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. So we see that truth is related to love and unity, which we'll look at in a moment. It abides in us and will be with us forever. And the editors of the Bible put a colon at the end of verse 2, I think, to help us out. What, is, what does truth look like? It means grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. These are the realities of the gospel that apply to each and every believer. So grace is, is God's favor, His disposition to do good to His people despite our guilt. Mercy is God's help and His willingness to make His power available to us and for us. Peace is God's rest. And so rather than hostility and enmity, we now exist in a perfect relationship with God and harmony as his friends and his sons. And John makes it a point to say these blessings are from God the Father and from his Son, Jesus Christ. Together. John is being very intentional to make, these make sure we understand these claims come from both God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. This is a claim of Jesus' divinity, that he is equal with the Father. And we have to understand truth and why a right understanding of Jesus is so important for the truth. Because we see in verses 7-9, to nine, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So the problem is there are deceivers. There are people then and now who make false claims about Jesus. And that he says they are anti-Christ. They are sent on an anti-great commission in direct opposition to the work of Jesus. Now it's not entirely clear, John doesn't give us a lot of detail about what exactly these false teachers are teaching. He says they don't confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. And this seems to be some form of a denial of the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he was a real human being, that he had a real body. And that kind of teaching sprung up early in the church. It, it stems from a philosophy that teaches that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good. And so maybe even with the best of intentions, people were trying to protect Jesus if, as if they could, but to protect him from the kind of corruption of the ideology of the, the material world. But as we've considered, this is a, a deviation from the truth, right? It's not what the Bible says about Jesus. It, it denies the inherent goodness of God's creation, even though now it's under the curse because of sin. But most importantly, to say Jesus didn't have a body actually denies, it severs the hope of the gospel. Right? Because if Jesus didn't really 
have a body, then he didn't really die. And if Jesus didn't die, then friends, we are still in our sin. Right? If Jesus didn't accomplish what he said he accomplished on the cross, then we are hopeless. The cross is not just a powerful analogy of the extent of God's love. It's the economic transaction that purchased men and women out of slavery to sin into freedom in Christ. It's how God maintains His perfect righteousness by being just, by punishing every single sin, eternal, infinite God, punishing the sin of finite, created human beings who rebelled against Him, and yet forgiving those human beings, declaring them righteous. The only way that could happen was the cross of Jesus being a fully human, suffering in the place of human beings, but also infinitely God to exhaust the eternal wrath of the Father. He had to be both God and man to accomplish our salvation. And so we see in verse 9 that it's Jesus' teaching about himself that's the standard of true faith. So John says negatively and positively, those who don't abide, do not live, don't stay and camp out in this teaching, the ones who don't stay here, they don't have God. They may be claiming to go on ahead to make more progress, to be more spiritual than everybody else, but in reality, they're, they're leaving the group. They're leaving the truth. So uh, I, one of the things I like to do in my spare time is hike. And sometimes we go in groups of, of people, and you can imagine being on a hike, and one person has the map, right? And it's a, it's a dense trail. It's not exactly clear where it is. And so the one person has the map, and People, a, a few people in the group decide they're going to go their own way. It's going too slow. We're just going to forge on ahead. We're going to kind of bushwhack through the side of the mountain. Usually that doesn't end well, right? They end up lost. They end up needing rescue. And that's exactly what's happening with these false teachers. John says positively, though, those who abide in this teaching have both the Father and the Son. Those who stand firm in and hold fast to the truth of the gospel are those who truly have a saving relationship with God through Jesus. So friends, I think we should just stop and consider the magnitude of these words. That some people have God. True Christians have God. Have the Father and the Son. It's an amazing claim, isn't it, friends? Just like a marriage where husband and wife belong to each other in a way that radically changes their relationship with each other and everyone else in the world, so too the, the relationship with Christians and God, that's what Christians have in their relationship with God. In fact, the Bible tells us that marriage is given to us to point to this reality. Christians who are united to Christ by faith, who are saved by His death and resurrection, have a life-changing personal relationship with God. This is God who is our Creator, God who is the, the Holy and Righteous One, who is all-wise and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present. All those things are still true, and yet He becomes our Father who loves us and cares for us. He has us and we have Him. That's an amazing claim. So if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I would just encourage you to, to meditate on that reality that you have God. And store that truth up deep in your soul that it becomes like ballast, the weight in the bottom of the ship that, that holds it steady so that no matter how hard the winds are blowing or how big the waves are, that ship stays on course because of that, that ballast. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, I would just ask you, friend, what, what do you have that could compare with this truth? What is it that you're living for? What kind of achievement or acclaim 
that could stand against having a personal, life-giving relationship with your Maker. And if you're, you're here this morning, members of this church, I would just encourage you to make this the core of your vocabulary in your life together. Talk about Jesus with one another. Talk about the reality that God has given you Himself as His greatest gift. This is the way that we can meaningfully care for each other. So we see that essential to understanding Christianity is, is understanding properly who Jesus is and what He's done. But it's not just a mental exercise. It's not just something that's a matter of our, our intellect or our, our confession. It's practical. When we confess that Jesus is our King, it must mean that we also live under His authority. And so that's why John writes in verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. It's not just I rejoice that some of your children know the truth or confess the truth, but it's how they live. It's the lifestyle of this people. It's how they walk. So we see it's possible to know or confess the truth and not walk in it. Right? That's not the goal. That's not what we're aiming for. But it is possible. And in fact, a lack of evidence of walking in the truth can make someone's confession suspect. In this way, walking is like a race with a goal and a prize to win. And so John warns them in verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And we see warnings like this in other places in the New Testament where failing to persevere in the truth is an indication that they never had it to begin with. They seem to be in the race like everyone else, but they, they really weren't. So let me ask you, what about you this morning? Is there evidence in your life that you are following Jesus? How is your relationship with Jesus leading you to do what you otherwise wouldn't do? To say yes when you would rather say no, or maybe to say no when you would rather say yes. To work when you would otherwise rest, or to rest when you would otherwise work. To speak instead of holding back, or to listen instead of rushing in to speak. To give when you would rather hold on to something, or, or to ask for help when you'd really rather not humble yourself and make others aware that you have a need. See, one of the ways you know you're following Jesus is if you're going somewhere that you wouldn't otherwise go. Christians are called to walk in truth, to affirm and respond to the reality of who Jesus is. So let's move on to consider the second point, walk in love. Verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So here John is emphasizing the command from Jesus that his disciples love one another. And Jesus gave this in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we see this command, is a, it's, it's a command. It's a matter of obedience to Jesus' authority. It's his commandment, and John emphasizes that several times. But I think we should ask, what, what sense is it new? Because as far back as Leviticus, the second great command, right? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus qualifies this command by his own love for his disciples. 
just as I have loved you. And then later he tells them, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so it's the extent of love that Jesus is calling them to that's new. Jesus would lay down his life and die a brutal death for our redemption. Almost all the disciples would go on to die the death of a martyr proclaiming Jesus' name. And here John is telling us that Jesus calls all of his disciples to radical self-denial, self-sacrifice for each other's good. We also know from this command that this is a matter of the church's witness. By their sacrificial love, Jesus' disciples will distinguish themselves from the world. He says everyone will know that we are his disciples if we love each other. So I think it's helpful for us to see that love isn't, isn't primarily a feeling that we have toward one another. It, it's certainly normal that affection would accompany, um, accompany love. Maybe we even would ask when we don't have affection for someone, what's going on? Why is that, that off? But we see that love is, is more than just a feeling. It, it's, it's like truth, something that has to be lived out and walked in. It's a commitment to act in a certain way toward a certain person. That's what love is. So a few questions for application. Do you think love is optional? Now maybe you wouldn't outright say that, but is your life characterized by love? If, if your life is not characterized by love, I think you have to stop and ask yourself, if you're really a Christian, what does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus who doesn't love? We are confronted with his command, love one another. So friend, how are you doing that? Is your love sacrificial? So Jesus qualifies his love and our love, saying that we should love as he loved us. So again, this may be warm feelings, it may be notes of encouragement and tight hugs and, and all those things, but it has to be more than that, right? The world loves that way. So where is your love for Jesus costing you? What are you having to give up in order to love brothers and sisters? Who are you loving that you wouldn't naturally love? And I, I think related to these things, is your love demonstrable? Does it stand out in a way that causes other people to marvel or maybe even pity you for how you follow Jesus' example? I think we can examine certain parts of our lives to help us answer these questions. If we look at how we spend our time and money and energy, that's going to tell us what we truly love, isn't it? What are the things in your routine and your budget that are fixed and what things are negotiable? Right? What will you drop everything to go and do? Who are you willing to disappoint and why? Because we answer those questions, we're going to find out what we really love. Well, third and finally, we're called to walk together in truth and in love. So we walk in truth, walk in love. Third, walk together in truth and love. Let's look back at verse 3. John says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. So these gospel realities that come to us in truth and love have to find their expression in Christian community, in life together. And this is going to overlap a lot with what we've just been considering in love, but I think it's important to stop and really think about the church and its place here or else we miss it. Truth and love have to go together. So uh, Ray Ortland, a, a pastor in Tennessee, 
says truth without love is harsh and ugly. And love without truth is sentimental and cowardly. What if you've experienced that in your life where somebody just, all they want to do is bash people over the head with truth and seem to have no love or they have no courage or conviction to actually say anything that, somebody, that might offend somebody else even when it needs to be said. So in this way, truth and love are, are like dough that has to be the right consistency. Truth hardens love. Love softens truth. And the only way the, the biscuits are going to turn out right is if that mix is, is just right. That's what we're called to as Christians. The command from Jesus is to love one another. And so we see the, the apostle, the, the elder John, modeling this even. He says he loves the elect lady and her children. They are, are God's chosen ones, and he loves them as well. And he sends greetings from another church, another elect sister and her children. They're bound together, he says in the beginning, in love to all who know the truth. This is a community of people in truth and love. And so John is showing us that there's a, a particular kind of love that should characterize all Christians in our relationships with one another. We understand that through our union with Christ, we are adopted into God's family, that we are made brothers and sisters with all who are likewise loved and adopted by God the Father. And so we are all one family. So it's great to come to another church this morning that affirms the same gospel and feel like I'm at home. You may be strangers in the sense of I don't know you, but we all have the same Savior in common and that unites us as family. And so we want to work to cultivate this sense of brotherhood among what we call the universal church, right? All Christians throughout the world, throughout all time, we want to have a bond with them. We live in a time where there is intense polarization, where there is deep tribalism, and we need to resist that. Now, I, I come from a church, and I am preaching at a church where there is Baptist in the name, right? That distinction, that's not an essential Christian distinction, but is an important one. And, and I, I think denominations are important and helpful because we want to take Jesus' words seriously. And we may disagree about certain things that aren't as clear. But I don't want those differences to overshadow the common ground we share in Christ with those who profess the same Savior, the same gospel that changes people. We want to make sure that we hold that above our different preferences. So we should rejoice when we hear of the health and growth of other gospel-preaching churches. We should grieve when we hear about other congregations that are struggling. We, we should be bothered when we hear about the persecution of Christians around the world because those are our brothers and sisters. Right? We have a bond with those people different from any other bond that we have. And friends, this is something that all of us can participate in in different ways. So one of the ways we can do this is by prayer. Right? Every Christian can and must pray. And one of the reasons God has chosen us is to be before Him in love, making our requests known to Him. And so praying for other people who are doing Great Commission work, certainly for the one local church that you're a part of, but also beyond that. Who do you know who's doing Great Commission work? I, I'd ask for your prayers for our church, that you would consider maybe praying for us once a month for the work of the gospel taking place at Jefferson Park. Ask Justin about other ministries or resources of gospel work in this area around the world that you can be praying for. We can support gospel work. So God has blessed many of us with financial resources. This church, 
Like every church puts together a budget that reflects gospel ministry here and other places. And the more you give to the church, the more that ministry can be multiplied here and around the world. So be generous so that you can fully participate in God's work. Jesus makes us this amazing offer where we can trade our worldly goods that will be destroyed, that we can't keep, that moth and rust destroy, that thieves can steal. We can trade that for eternal heavenly treasure. Thieves don't steal, moth and rust don't destroy. It lasts forever. There's no better investment offer opportunity than that. And for some of you, maybe God has gifted you with the ability to make money. And I would just encourage you to consider, maybe that's how God has called you to participate in the building of His kingdom. So we can pray, we can support, but third, we can participate. Right, we can go. This is, we have the ability to travel and go like no other time in human history. So consider maybe a short-term trip. Maybe God is calling someone here into to full-time ministry to go overseas or to some other place to share the gospel. Maybe you can use the job training you have here to go somewhere else, to get in somewhere where people can't go as missionaries, but they can go as workers in another trade or field. Maybe you need to go somewhere to support other churches in their gospel work. There's lots of options, short-term, long-term, but just consider how you can be participating in the work of the kingdom, both here and beyond. So we want to be conscious of and rejoice in what God is doing all around the world. But we also want to think about our own local churches. And in fact, I would argue that most of this letter only makes sense if it's the local church that's, that's in view, or at least primarily in view. So John is even writing, I argue, from one local church to another local church. The kind of love that Jesus calls us to as Christians is not just random acts of kindness toward anyone, but the kind of sacrificial commitment that usually manifests itself in local churches. It's impossible to love every Christian around the world. We just can't do it, right? But the local church defines who it is that we're committed to loving in this particular way. And it's in the context of the consistency of their love that the world can see and take note of Jesus' disciples. So the local church is where a group of Christians commit to walk together in the truth and love of Jesus. So think back to verse 9. Who is it that the deceivers are, are going on ahead of? Sure, maybe abstractly they're, they're going out from the, the official teaching of the church at that time, but that's played out in local churches, right? There are people leaving their local churches to gather around some other teaching that differs from the teaching of the apostles. They're leaving their group to go on to something else. And it seems possible, if not even likely, that part of that division that's taking place in the church is bringing into question Jesus' commandment to the disciples that they love one another. It's redefining what is love or who are we responsible to love. And so John warns the church not to depart from the truth, but to keep believing it and to keep expressing their faith in their commitment to love each other. Keep believing, keep loving, that's what you got to do. And so it's with that backdrop then, I think that we can try to make sense of verses 10 and 11. So John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, when I've taught this before or preached this, that's always, without a doubt, the question that people have. What in the world is John talking about? Because it sounds really unloving, doesn't it? In a book about love, 
to say, don't show hospitality to someone, don't even greet someone. So we have to do a little background work to figure out what's going on in the first century to understand this. As you may expect, traveling was very different than it is today, right? Hotels were not nearly as convenient. They were dangerous and dirty and had bad reputations. And so Christian missionaries, as they traveled from town to town, depended upon hospitality shown to them by strangers. So when a traveling teacher came to town, he would find another Christian and and stay with him. But staying with him wasn't just meeting his physical needs, right? Staying with a Christian was an official endorsement into the Christian community. The greeting was a formal thing. It was giving him community credentials. So we even see that in this letter, right? John is greeting them on behalf of one church, bringing that greeting to another. So just to pick on somebody named Bill, hypothetical, that's who we usually use at Jefferson Park. Bill was a Christian, and, and the teachers would come to town, they would find Bill, he had room for them to stay there, and so they would stay with Bill, but that gave the teachers the right and authority in the town to go around and say, oh yeah, I, I know Bill, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with Bill's church, and so I'm representing Bill as I'm spreading this message. And it seems like, it's likely, if not completely sure, but that the, the house that John's referring to is not just the house of hospitality where somebody's sleeping, but the house where the church gathered and met, right? So don't receive him into your house is referring to the the meeting place of the church. So in the first century, false teachers seized this opportunity to take advantage of people, right? It was easy to make money. If you had the gift of gab and you could kind of, uh, you could draw a crowd with your teaching, it it was really easy to to do that and to live that way, to get out of the the manual labor business and get into the, the intellectual business. So teachers who had something more or something special to say could live off of the hospitality provided to them. And and so it's important for us to see that John is not talking about just unbelievers or people who are even confused about what they believe, but people who have intentionally departed from Christianity to teach something else, to teach false and contrary claims about Jesus. And so John is forbidding the church from receiving these false, false teachers because they would be endorsing and participating in their wicked works. They would be spreading false teaching about Jesus. They would be undermining their own efforts to spread the gospel in their community. So so to make this very practical, we sometimes have Mormons, you know, come and knock on the door, right? People who make false claims about Jesus. I don't think what John is prohibiting is you inviting that person in to sit down over a cup of coffee and talk about what the Bible really says about Jesus. I don't think he's prohibiting that at all. I think that would be a good thing to do. But if you had a Mormon neighbor and he asked if, if somebody could come and stay at your house for the summer while he traveled around your neighborhood or your community doing his Mormon evangelism, I think you would have to say no. I can't participate. I can't further that work. Or if he asked if he could come and speak here, I think you'd have to say no. We don't let people come in and speak to the church and make false claims about Jesus. Now I want us to be clear, you don't don't have to be good enough to attend church services or even to become a Christian. In fact, you have to give up your goodness to be a Christian. And you don't have to believe enough, you don't have to pass a, a really high theological bar in order to be a Christian. But you do have to confess the right thing about Jesus. And so the particular concern of of this letter is not to confuse the church or the community about who actually is a Christian. It's to clearly stand against those whose teaching is not in line with the gospel. 
And so we have to be careful who we welcome into membership at our church. My church practices uh, something that feels kind of unfamiliar to people, but where we actually sit down and interview and we talk to people. and We want to hear their testimony and what they confess about Jesus before they join. According to Matthew 16, membership is how the whole church speaks on behalf of heaven to authorize who is it that really represents Jesus. We should be careful about who speaks at our public gatherings and assume and ensure that those who come to us from the outside affirm the same gospel that we do. So there's a lot of warnings in there, but I don't want us to lose in all those warnings the reality that John is affirming here. See, in the local church, we participate with each other in a, a special way. The reason that showing hospitality to false teachers was dangerous was because church members are intimately connected with each other. The people that influence you individually influence you corporately. And this is the the nature of church membership. We are connected with each other, and so we aren't just watchful over ourselves, like all that, as long as I've got my stuff straight, I'm okay. No, we care about each other. We, We care about how we influence each other. We're conscious that our expressions of faith affect each other's expressions of faith. And this all affects our witness to the world. So there are good divisions. When someone persists in uh, contradicting the truth, we want to separate from that person, not to be hateful or spiteful, but actually in love. We don't want them to be wrongly assured about their own salvation. We don't want to expose each other to the danger of confusion. We don't want outsiders to be confused about the message of Jesus. So the church is to be a place where Jesus' people come together to display his love. It's our common commitment to the truth of Jesus that unites us as his people, and it's our obedience to his command to love one another that sets the agenda for how we should live together. I think we see one more aspect of the local church in verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face that our joy may be complete. So the church is the place, the local church is where face-to-face interaction happens, what we're experiencing right now. There's something unique about this time when we gather together to share in the words of Christ. And I don't think John is in any way minimizing the, the spiritual good of writing. He wrote several letters himself. God himself, the perfect communicator, wrote his word for us. But God ordained that we would be people who live by his word and speak his truth to one another in the context of real relationships. So John said he would rather talk face-to-face than write. And I think we should consider some of his his wisdom here. Uh, There are some things better said in person than in writing. We live in an age where writing is really easy, right? We, We send text messages that are sarcastic. We send scathing emails to people. We rant on social media, on Facebook, as I was talking about at the beginning. When we feel we have something to communicate, it's never been easier to get that word out. And yet I think we should do well to follow John's example, to slow down, to consider who it is we are trying to benefit in our communication. When it's something that's hard to say, we're usually way better off to communicate in person where we can interact not just with words, but with tone and facial expression to clarify things that we don't understand. If it's something we wouldn't say to somebody in person, probably shouldn't say it at all. Something we wouldn't say that way in person. Probably better not to say it. Notice John's reason for wanting to communicate in person, though. So that our joy 
may be complete. So that's the goal of our relationships in the local church is to complete each other's joy. It's a joy shared in the gospel. That's why God has given us to each other in relationships. John said in verse 4, he rejoiced to hear some of the church members walking in the truth and now he hopes for a face-to-face meeting with them to complete that joy. So friends, we should ask ourselves, what is it that makes us rejoice? What, what brings us joy? For the Apostle John and, and elsewhere in the New Testament, we see it's Christians persevering in the faith that brings them joy. A couple weeks ago, a, a member of my church was, was concerned about me and he came to ask me, you know, how can I help? Is there something I can do to help you? And I said, brother, be faithful. Like, that's the best thing that you can do for me is to be faithful. Walk in the truth, live in obedience to Jesus in, in your home, and your work, love your family, serve the church. This is God's agenda for us, and it's what pleases pastors. So a few examples, just ideas, things that I see in my church I want to commend to you. Uh, faithful presence, those of you who are just here consistently when the church meets, you make it a priority to be here. Meeting practical needs in the body when things come up, being willing to step up and see that those things happen. Showing hospitality to each other, inviting each other into your lives throughout the week. Visiting people who are in need. Meeting together to study the word or to, to hold each other accountable about particular issues, to pray together. Confessing your sins to each other and extending forgiveness to one another. Sharing the gospel with friends and neighbors and coworkers, and participating in Christ's work. Those are just a few examples of things that encourage pastors. Sharing Jesus together is what brings Christians joy. And friends, let's just notice, that's, that's the only thing we've got. Right? The, the world has more expensive toys and more extravagant diversions, better entertainment, but what we have is Jesus. The best way that we can grow individually and as a church is by thinking about Jesus and by talking about him with each other. It's in his presence that there is fullness of joy and at his right hand is pleasure forevermore. And so let me challenge you, church, to make this your commitment. If it's Jesus that connects you to God and to each other, make Jesus the center of your life together. So when you meet together, talk about how Jesus is helping you, how you're growing in your understanding of and obedience to him. Ask each other for help or encouragement when you're struggling to believe or follow something that he commanded. And remind each other that there is great reward in following him and great danger in neglecting his salvation. And so walk together in Jesus' truth and love and keep doing it until he returns or calls you home to his eternal joy. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you because you are a God of truth and love. You are completely holy and righteous but at the same time, you are merciful and compassionate. Lord, we confess that we are not like you. We are crooked. We are dishonest. We are hard-hearted. And so, Lord, we are overwhelmed with thankfulness for your grace and mercy and peace to us through Jesus Christ, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. We ask that you would help us to live together as your people, a people marked by truth and love, living in obedience to you so that our joy may be full, Lord. How good it is that you want our joy and that you have told us the pathway to joy. 
We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.